The pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and BioNTech have developed a seemingly effective coronavirus vaccine. Pfizer said early analysis suggests that the vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 among trial volunteers who had not been previously infected. Dr Chris Smith, consultant clinical virologist at Cambridge University, one of BBC Radio 5 Live's Naked Scientists, has been helping us understand the science emerging around the COVID-19 pandemic for the last few months. And here he is again. Do you have any concerns or cautions amid the optimism about this vaccine? I was having this sort of conversation with a colleague of mine called Claire Bryant. She's a veterinary immunologist and um, works at the University of Cambridge. And I asked her that very question. Do you think Pfizer have peaked too soon? Because what we've got are lots of encouraging looking headlines, but no data to back it up. And it would be really rather nice to have some information, some underpinning data, or for them to have waited till they've finished their phase three trial, which is where their vaccine is at the moment. It's not completed, but they've got some directional preliminary findings, which they've announced. Would have been perhaps a bit better for them to have waited and then given us the full story, because there are unknowns. And as you have highlighted, 90% was the magic number making headlines all over the place, 90% successful. But then if you turn that round, 10% failure doesn't sound quite so attractive, does it? But that's the reality. We want to know who are the 10% for whom this vaccine doesn't work and why not? And if that 10% for whom it doesn't work happen to be the same crowd of people for whom coronavirus is a death knell, then we're not really any further forward through having a vaccine. On the other hand, maybe I'm being pessimistic and and it's important to be cautious, of course, and it's all going to be fine. But it would be useful to have that sort of information. Who responded to it? What sort of age ranges? What about people who have underlying chronic health conditions, immune disabling conditions? You know, what about those sorts of crowds of people and how long does the immunity last for? Those are the key questions which which we do need to see answers to before we can celebrate and pop too many champagne corks. We have been accustomed, and rightly so, to suspect pharmaceutical companies that don't release the full data. Is this common, not to release the data at this point? Most of the time, we're not really in this situation. These are exceptional times, and so you can't really say what is the precedent, why doesn't it apply here, because nothing really applies. There is no precedent for a pandemic which has caught the world with its trousers down in the way that this one has. But normally what happens is that pharmaceutical companies will go through 10 years of testing and research and development to, with a a 90% failure rate, get their success story out there, get their drugs out there, and then they begin to market them. It's not that usual for someone midway through a phase three trial to then announce results in this sort of way. And and I, one wonders whether someone was either going to leak something or whether there there is some other reason why. I mean, it's not clear to me or, or to my colleagues I've been talking to about this why they should have taken the approach they have, unless it was to give us all a, a, the, you know the world's morale a shot in the arm, apart from just a coronavirus vaccine, so that we all feel a bit better with with um you know the festive period coming and nothing else to look forward to. Am I right that the vaccine was not tested on elderly people? Well, we're told that, and in fact, I was listening to uh, the head of the MHRA, that's the regulator in the UK, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, and she was saying, Dr. Rain, in the week at a press conference convened to discuss precisely this topic, that in fact the criteria, they have covered a full range, full age spectrum 
but not young children, no one under 18. Um, but the, the people included in the trial will run up to a reasonable senior age. But you're not going to be putting in there and recruiting into your trial for, for various reasons, people who are uh, at death's door from a range of other health conditions for whom coronavirus might be the straw break in the camel's back. So therefore, one question is, is this a fair appraisal of how this would work in real world circumstances? The other criticism I have is if you look at the data, they've done this trial, they say, on 44,000 people, give or take. And that was a placebo controlled trial. So in other words, you've got roughly half the people get uh, the placebo, the other half of the people get the real deal vaccine. No one knows what they're given to whom or who's had what. And you follow people up and what you're looking for is an excess of infections in the group that have had the placebo. And you can then make a case when you've had that excess of infections that uh, it protects them the people who've had the vaccine, much more than the people who haven't. But there's only been about 90 infections that they know of. And obviously the vast majority of those in the placebo group. But that's not very many people who've actually caught it in the placebo group for, for us really to have a clear idea about things. So I think the numbers are pretty small, really, and it would be useful to have bigger numbers. Um, somebody's texted in to say... Uh, Mark, that they are a scientist and in no way an anti-vax person. But, he says, he's worried about long-term effects. Surely we can't know if a vaccine is safe until we have very long-term, five years of data. If there were any long-term effects, it would be the death knell for all vaccines, which is a fair point. I agree. And um, this was one of the other things anticipated by... Uh, a number of people from the UK government, Jonathan Van Tam, who is our deputy chief medical officer, or one of them, was was actually saying and making this very point alongside the head of the regulator and uh, making the point that that because they acknowledge we effectively get one chance at doing this because there will be enormous backlash. If this goes wrong, whoever is first through the gates and starts putting vaccines into people, if it goes wrong, the impact will be so dramatic because it will induce a state of paralysis across all vaccines because it will it will massively fuel the both the anti-vax but also the vaccine hesitancy stakes and people will will quite rightly be very skeptical even if the next one that comes along is absolutely perfect people people would be very skeptical and surveys in a number of countries in the US Pew have done some surveys half of the people they asked in one round of surveying said they would issue a vaccine if offered. In the UK, uh, the data I've seen suggests that about three quarters of people probably would have a vaccine if, if push came to shove, but they're certainly not altogether comfortable about it. And the reasons they're citing are they think that this is a very accelerated course of development and they're concerned about uh, whether or not any corners have been cut. And in some countries, corners have been cut. We know that Vladimir Putin had a vaccine out in a couple of months ago. We know that the Chinese have had a vaccine out. The, va the Chinese vaccine actually had a bit of a setback last week because in Brazil they had to stop the trial because they had some adverse effects. I understand they were subsequently not linked to the vaccine, but again, it, it, it was a cause for concern. So people are rightly saying, are, are corners being cut? But the regulatory authorities are saying, absolutely not. Safety comes first. We are not going to accept anything that we're not 100% happy with. And this is an independent, impartial group who appraise these medicines. And so personally, someone asked me this morning from South Africa, I was doing a programme we do each week from South Africa, and a lady phoned in and said, 
would I have it? And I said, uh, I would, because if it gets the nod of approval from our regulator, then I'm comfortable that if I take other drugs that they've approved, they're applying the same strict criteria to, to this new one. Therefore, I would be, be comfortable to use it. Conspiracy theories, of course, surround it. And uh, as somebody has texted, they released the vaccine results literally a day after the US election. Not a coincidence. I don't know whether you have any comment to make on that. Well, actually, I, I said precisely the same thing. And I was saying to my colleagues, I suspect that the reason we were anticipating that a number of companies would release their phase three data in October. And I also spoke to a number of people who are authorities in, in this particular sector, and they were all expecting October to be the magic month. And when it didn't come to pass, uh, people began to say, well, do you think this could have something to do with the US election? And we know that um, the current incumbent of the post had said we're going to have a vaccine in time for the elections the pharmaceutical industry came out en masse together if you remember and they all said no safety comes first we're not rushing for anything we will come out with something when we're comfortable we have something safe and effective and i think perhaps if pfizer could have could probably have made this announcement sooner they probably chose not to because it would have been claimed as as a victory in that electioneering campaign and i think they probably did decide if they had some control over it i think they would have probably deferred it until after the election was known so you're suggesting that pfizer wanted to undermine trump no i'm suggesting that they didn't want to be dragged into it because if if they get dragged into that, become part of this election promise, and then something does go wrong with their vaccine, it could backfire on them as a company and an organisation for, for no reason other than they got dragged into something that they, they're actually nothing to do with. And so it's much better to be completely separate from the politics because that's all is public trust. If you've got public trust and, and it's in a medicine, you do not want to muddy those waters with political situations because the two things are not connected. And that's why our regulator, for instance, in the UK isn't that they're appointed by the government, but they're completely independent of the process of the companies that make the agents, etc. And they are passing an impartial verdict on the safety of, of something. If you end up with an agent being dragged in uh, under the guise of some kind of political posturing, there is a danger that there could be a backlash against the product, whoever makes it. Um, or if anything goes wrong, it, it could also end up with its image being tarnished. So I think they probably wanted to distance themselves from whatever was going on politically, and if, if they could. And that's what I would have done if I was in that situation. All right. Um, let's talk about what it is. It's a messenger RNA vaccine, which is evidently the first ever messenger RNA vaccine. What is it? How does it work? Yeah, it's a completely new way of doing things. What they've done is to take the genetic code of the virus in specifically the part of the genetic code that it uses to make its surface coat protein called the S or spike protein. This is the bit of the virus that's the business end that grabs hold of our cells and engages with them and forces the virus into our cells. If you make antibodies against that structure, it stops the virus invading our cells. So it's a good target. By taking the piece of genetic code, the so-called mRNA, which is the viral equivalent of our DNA, they've wrapped it up into an oily bubble and you make billions of these tiny oily bubbles and the oil is there to stabilize this and to help it get into cells you inject this preparation into a muscle and the surrounding cells pick up these packages they unwrap them get the genetic code out read it and then use that genetic code to make 
the outer coat of the virus as though those cells had been infected with the virus for real. Obviously they haven't, they've just got the genetic message corresponding to a bit of it. And this is then displayed to the immune system just as if they had been infected with a virus. So it's displaying it in the context of though that virus was really growing inside those cells. This shows the immune system what the virus does to that cell when it makes this protein and what it looks like. And it drives a a pretty potent response both to make antibodies, which are molecules that stick onto things and can neutralise them, and also white blood cells called cytotoxic T cells that can go around inspecting cells in the body and looking for signs that viruses are growing in them and destroying those cells. So it gives you both arms of the immune response. Never been done before in humans, never been used clinically in this way, There have been some experimental agents made this way against other viruses, including the Zika virus, which showed some promise in experimental animals, although Zika kind of petered out, so they they didn't push this much further. But it's not been done for a coronavirus before, and it's not been done in a human before. So it's a first on many levels. Why hasn't it been done before? Uh, The technology involved is quite demanding and we haven't faced the challenge that we have with a coronavirus before. Previously we've been doing things with flu viruses and uh, things like MMR and we've had pretty stable, safe ways of making vaccines against those things. This has pushed the envelope and it's made people more daring and look at ways to make things that they can scale up in a hurry. The great attraction of a genetic vaccine like this is that you can make enormous amounts of it very quickly and relatively cheaply and if you get the problem we've seen emerging in Denmark which are these mink which have been infected with coronavirus and because they're being intensively farmed it's ripping through that population or was until they began to cull them and it is slowly evolving in the mink population and adapting and those mutations mean that you've got a different virus now circulating in the mink with the capacity potentially to bypass human immunity conferred by a vaccine. So that could pull the rug from under vaccines that you can't update. But with a genetic vaccine like this, you could take the message corresponding to the altered version of the virus that's growing in, say, a mink, and you could add that into the mix and update your vaccine. So you use exactly the same mechanism. You've got the safety track record. You know it works. You can make it safely. You can make it at scale but you can make it agile and respond to a, a changing, evolving, infectious threat like this one. Right, and and it could cover the different strains? Yes, for that reason, because you can update the gene. If you discover, and the virus is evolving very slowly, it only naturally evolves by changing a couple of genetic letters every month in its 30,000 genetic letter-long code, which is very slow. And this is because the virus has built into it a mechanism for for error-checking its genetic code as it goes. Most viruses, many viruses, don't have this. They just make loads of mistakes, and that's part of their lifestyle because it gives them a rapid fleet-of-foot ability to mutate and evolve and sidestep our immune response. Coronaviruses take a different approach. They They don't do that. They keep their genetic message fairly intact. But when they go into a new animal species, obviously you're putting enormous pressure on the virus to evolve to become better at spreading in that species, which is why this has happened in Denmark with these mink. But the fact that you can make a vaccine that corresponds to the genetic code that must have changed to do that means that you can incorporate that change into your vaccine suite and make it work pretty promptly. Whereas if this was the flu... You'd have to re-derive a whole live vaccine and then grow it, make enormous amounts of it, smash it up, turn it into the vaccine. 
it take, takes months to do that, whereas with something like this, you could potentially update it much more quickly. Why do we need two jabs of it? Uh, the reason for this is that when they've done tests in the early phases of the development, they found that it wasn't sufficiently immunogenic. In other words, didn't drive a strong enough immune response to give you a big enough titer of antibodies if you're exposed just once. And the way the immune system works is it is what is called an adaptive immune response. What that means is that you start with a blank sheet, you make an immune response to things that you see, and every time you re-encounter that thing, you make the immune response even better and you optimise it even further. So by giving people two hits of the vaccine, you drive a response once, you establish what's called immune memory, which is a whole suite of cells sitting in the, in the body that have memory of having encountered that particular threat and know how to make antibodies against it and how to make cytotoxic T-cells, white blood cells that can kill virus-infected cells. And if you come back with another stimulus... Uh, to remind the immune system what it learned before. It's almost like sending you back for your repeat driving test. Uh, you, you basically remind yourself how to drive properly and you, you practice and you get really, really good. And this means you then really have honed your skills. So it's a way of really making sure the immune response is optimal and giving high enough titers of the protective elements like antibodies to defend you for a longer period of time. Does this vaccine fit into the category of a genetically modified organism? No, not, not really, because, because it's not actually a genetically modified organism. A GMO, or a genetically modified organism, is something you have taken, you've genetically manipulated it, and you've made it artificial. You've, you've artificially changed it in a way that wouldn't exist in nature, and it is in itself an organism, a viable organism, and does all the things an organism does. This is literally... Uh, an oily bag with a piece of genetic material inside it. And this, without the ability to uh, be made in a dish artificially using chemistry, this cannot exist and propagate on its own. It can only go into the body, get into cells and be decoded to make the cells respond and produce the protein that it encodes. It can't get outside your body and then start spreading autonomously like a virus in its own right. It's not an organism. One of the limiting factors of this vaccination, Chris, is that it has to be kept at very low temperatures, something like minus 80. Why? The reason for this is one of stability, and that will have something to do with the chemistry. It will be the stability of the genetic code. RNA molecules are more fragile than their more robust DNA counterparts because they are one single strand of amino of genetic letters compared with two wound around each other, which is DNA. So DNA is much more resilient, so RNA needs a lower temperature. And the stability of them wrapped up in these oily particles that, that keep the whole thing intact and enable it to be picked up by cells, that presumably is poorly stable the higher the temperature is and so long-term storage requires very low temperatures higher temperatures mean it will still work but it will just go off more quickly it's a bit like if you if you went shopping if you put your pork chops in the freezer you can keep them for three months if you put them in the fridge you've got to eat them before the end of the week and it's the same with something like this and with something like this where it's very precious and there are not many doses of it around at the moment you don't want half of it going off before you get to the end user and then you can only immunize half as many people i was watching the chief executive of pfizer talking in an interview the day this announcement came out and this point was put to him and he said 
but we've thought about this and although it's a stumbling block in the short term we're going to be working on a powder formulation which will be much more stable at high temperature and you just would reconstitute that at the point of need and then deploy it uh, rather than having to to keep it at this very low temperature all the time. A texter says that they work in primary care and with a vaccine which requires ultra-cold storage and two shots, they can't see how we will successfully implement vaccination in a population trial. Are you similarly pessimistic? It's going to be a challenge because we know we can do this for things like the flu. And with the flu in the UK every winter, we vaccinate about 15 million people, but we're only hitting them with the vaccine once. So yes, it is a logistical headache trying to get to what will amount to ultimately nearly 70 million people in this country and obviously other countries have many more, but to try and get to that number and do it not once but twice. So yes, this this does place enormous demand, but we're reassured by the fact we are told by our politicians. Again, this week we've seen a lot of these sorts of announcements and this, the very questions you're asking were being put to politicians here in the UK on Monday and the answers coming forward were um, behind the scenes. We've been worrying about this very question for a very long time and we have a plan in place. We weren't given details of the plan um, and exactly how it's going to be funded, but I suspect it will use the same sorts of approach that we use to get the flu vaccines into the most vulnerable members of society, which we do pretty successfully every year. People like my wife, who is a GP, go out and and they run vaccine drives. So basically they do a drive through at their surgery and people don't even have to get out of the car. You can just lean in, <laughs> stab them with the vaccine and, and on they go. And it, and it may be that we resort to those sorts of tactics to get this done at scale. The, the magic number, of course, that Pfizer has mentioned is 90% effective. But in the UK, for example, scientific estimates have said that they might get the vaccine should it come on stream, to 30% of the population. And that's not enough, is it? Uh, it depends what we want to achieve, because one group at the University of Oxford have done a bit of modelling, and I don't mean on a catwalk, as in with a mathematical uh, set of equations. And what they have uh, proven is that if you hit about 5% of people, the most vulnerable, you can reduce your death rate by 70% straight away. So by being strategic, especially when these things are in limited supply, we know that about 80% of people will be absolutely fine if they catch coronavirus. 20% will not be fine, but it's only about 20% of that 20%, so a fifth of a fifth who will have really serious problems. So therefore, if we are strategic about this and we target those people who are most vulnerable, most at risk, and the people caring for those people, we can block the majority of the transmissions into the people who really have a lot to lose if they catch this. And that makes the problem much more tractable. And then long term, as in by this time next year, we would hope to know where we stand. We probably will have more than just one vaccine to play with. I would anticipate we'll have a few by then and we'll therefore have many more options on the table. And we'll also see what the impact of vaccinating the people who are most at risk does to the transmission dynamics. It may well be that um, we feel a lot more confident about how we're going to approach this when we've got that initial round of vaccinations under our belt. On the other hand, we might feel less confident depending upon how it performs. When will the first doses be released and to whom? No one will say. And this question keeps on being asked. And 
two answers are produced by people who are paying for this stuff. So basically the UK government and governments of other countries. And the answer is there might be uh, dribs and drabs by Christmas time, but there might not. So the way I'm reading that is that there won't be, but uh, we're just having the carrot dangled and that probably because it takes a long time to get this stuff together. I think probably we're talking about early next year, but to really make a difference, we want this in wintertime, let's face it. Um, So I think probably it'll be early next year for the most vulnerable cases, and assuming other vaccines come along or other things begin to scale up, as anticipated, next summer, UK summer, so June, New Zealand wintertime, for the... Uh, rest of the population to begin to start seeing vaccines available at some kind of scale. So as we know, other vaccines are in the pipeline. Where does this leave them? Well, there there are many. There are more than 20, probably 25, 30 now in phase three clinical trials. And actually, that's really good because we know that if you go and ask a person running a pharma company, they will tell you that they, their business model is entirely based around a 90% failure rate. In other words, they only succeed 10% of the time, not because they're rubbish at making drugs, but they succeed 10% of the time because they're really very good at it, because this is really hard to do. And so by having so many opportunities, so many options and so many different types of vaccine, there are more than 10 different types of vaccine which are being developed. This is fantastic because it's not a given that it will be a one horse race this it's almost certain that there will be certain vaccines that work really well in certain contexts and on certain people and certain circumstances, and they will be rubbish for other applications. And so having a range of options is very, very attractive indeed. And one one sort of extreme example of that is if you've got a vaccine that needs to be kept at minus 80, then this means it will be absolutely useless if you live in a resource-poor country where there's not even an electricity supply, let alone a fridge. So you need a vaccine that will be stable at high temperature for that. And so a, a colleague of mine is, is actually working on that and he's in no rush because they're, they're going to work on a, a high temperature vaccine that will be stable, field deployable into third world settings and therefore very safe but developed over a long period of time for countries that don't want to use or can't use or for whom this sort of thing that's going to be going into countries like the UK, that that would be a useless vaccine to try to deploy into into the bush. Could you have more than one vaccine applied to a population, though? I mean, for example, in New Zealand, could we have two or three vaccines on the go? Yes, and there's no reason why you couldn't do that. And we do that with the flu already, quite frankly. I mean, there are a number of companies that make flu vaccines. And so the the governments will routinely, especially if they're anticipating a bad year or if there's a pandemic year, you might get a range of companies make a range of vaccines and then that you just buy up what you can get hold of. So, yes, I, I anticipate that that will be fine. And we wouldn't we wouldn't expect there to be a problem if people even had more than one vaccine more often. And this may end up having to happen because if the immunity to this thing wears off and it wears off fairly promptly, we may have to have boosters going on. And the only fly in that ointment, which we don't know the answer to yet, is whether or not someone might be at risk of a condition or a manifestation called antibody-dependent enhancement. And this happens with some viruses where you catch one strain of the virus and you make an immune response to it and you then catch a different strain of the virus, but the immune response you made to the first virus actually helps the second virus to infect you more. And it sounds paradoxical, but that's what happens, and you can get very severe disease. 
there is the possibility, although it's a theoretical one and we've no evidence for this, that if you caught the coronavirus and and then and or, or got immune from a vaccine, you might, if you then encountered it again, potentially have antibody-dependent enhanced disease. Hopefully not, though. We, we need to... That's one of those questions that needs to be ruled out. Right. And there are a number of questions coming in exactly about that. Look, I think you qualify as a scientific pin-up because somebody called Jeffrey has said... Listening to Chris Smith on the virus, I feel in the presence of a lyric poet on the topic <laughs> of DNA. Oh, fantastic. And I'm staggered by my ignorance of my own amazing being. So you can put that on your list of references. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Thank you. That's really kind. Nice to talk to you, Chris. Chris Thanks, Smith. Kim.